0: Hello, bookworms. Welcome to The Best Book Ever, the podcast where I get to know interesting people by asking them about their favorite books. I'm your host, Julie Strauss, and holy moly, do I have an interesting guest for you today. Leah Badgley was born in Southeast Asia, returned to Seattle to become a rock star. Do you know what? I'm going to let her tell you the rest. Hers is a life packed full of adventure. The book she chose to talk to me about today is set in Cambodia, a country that Leah knows really well, and it's an atmospheric thriller with hints of Hemingway and Patricia Highsmith. I know you're going to love hearing about why Hunters in the Dark by Lawrence Osborne is the best book ever. Hi, Leah. Welcome to the Best Book Ever podcast. Thank you, Julie. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to have you, Leah. As we discussed in our early messages, I think you have led possibly the most interesting life of anyone I have ever met, which is a sort of a vague thing to say. But in your case, it's really true. As I read through your bio, every sentence was more interesting than the last. I was wondering, will you tell my listeners about t- tell us about your entire life? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Well, do you have a a couple of hours? (laughs) Well, since we are talking specifically about Southeast Asia today with this book, will you tell my listeners about all of your connections to Southeast Asia?
1: Yes, uh, I'm happy to. I I, I was born in a country called Burma, um, and it's now uh, referred to as its original name as Myanmar um, back in the 50s. And my uh, father was there as an academic. Um, and doing research and my mother was there as an artist and she was seven months pregnant and very brave to go to the other side of the world there from Montana and had me there. So um, that sort of started things and then due to my father's background um, special as a political scientist specializing in Southeast Asia, um, I returned back to Burma as an adult and, uh, discovered, uh, sort of a deep and profound, um, connection that had been missing from my life. I've characterized it in the past as sort of, you know, a missing puzzle pieces that I didn't even know were missing. But when I walked off that plane and felt that hug of the humidity and the heat and the smells and the tastes and the sounds and the, and the language and in my ear, um, because I grew up with that. And, uh, as a, as a young child, so we lived there until I was say four, and then we left and then I hadn't returned. And then I did return and it was like, ah, this is what I've been missing. So in the meantime, between the time that I, uh, while that was all happening, I was, um, involved in the Seattle music scene and, sort of um, the pre-grunge people are familiar with that era of music in Seattle. And so right before that all exploded, I was doing music um, and put out an album and a video and blah, blah. Um, And then um, I became very ill and uh, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And so that sort of shifted everything, um, and was, you know, coping with that. The, uh, performing that I had been doing was curtailed. And so I really began to focus on writing, um, words versus the music. And so it went from song lyrics to poetry to, to fiction. And that was sort of how that all happened. Um, so, Far as back to sort of the timeline and everything, then I I, um, uh, was offered an opportunity to go with my then boyfriend in the early '90s to live in Cambodia, and I, at that point, um, I had returned to Burma once, and so I was kind of knew what I was getting into. But um, surprise, surprise, Cambodia and Burma are different countries. (laughs) Um, So. I uh, lived there for a year. I had this um, uh, amazing opportunity to be the director of Cornell University's archival project at Tool Slang Museum of Genocide. That's a mouthful. Um, Basically, what I did was oversaw a local um, staff, worked closely with them to microfilm the confessions that were, and other documents that were created under this horrific uh, Khmer Rouge prison um, during the Khmer Rouge era. And so I learned um, a lot about about things nobody should really know about, (laughs) but needed to be documented for um, posterity. And subsequently those documents were used in the crimes against humanity trials for some of the high ranking Khmer Rouge um, leaders. Um, so I did that. Um, and uh, the, after that, then I moved back to Burma and opened a restaurant. And uh, so while when one is an aspiring uh, musician rock star, what does one do? But one works in a restaurant. So um, I had a lot of restaurant background. And and so I took that with me to Burma. So I did that. Oh, my God. Where are we in this story? I'm <laughs> it's just, it's such a snoozer. Um, So then uh, uh, met my now husband there who was working as a diplomat for former Yugoslavia and uh, we married and um, I was we were going to have a baby and I was like time to come back to Seattle area and so did that and anyway now I, I am have always been encouraged to consider writing my memoir just because I've had this wild and crazy life. And I didn't go into all the details because seriously, we would be here a really long time. But um, uh, so instead of doing that, I decided to uh, pick up on the fiction that I had started way back when. So um, I have been writing novels. How did you
0: protect your heart in those years that you were Doing the microfilm of the ah uh, yeah um, war crimes because you are you seem like such a gentle person <laughs> you seem very happy like there's a very I am. how how did you how did you protect the good in yourself when you were exposed to the absolute worst that we're capable of as a as a
1: well Julie how you know, could I not um, be Authentic and human in that environment. Um, I uh hmm. so I went there. It was the first project or sort of um thing that I had done that wasn't just about me. I I don't come from a religious background, I don't come from um sort of uh a, a background. Of service, I say that with a big S, if if that makes sort of any sense. Um, I I went as a self uh, occupied young woman, like uh, like many of us are, <laughs> um, and so it was the first time that I had done anything that wasn't self serving, and I don't mean that in a in a nasty way. I I just I'm I'm being completely honest here, right? So, so being there, um, you know, people would come and ask me, you know, how can I do this work? How can exactly what you asked me, you know, how, how can I do that? How can I go to my office every day, which was uh, stained with blood uh, on the floor? You know, I mean, how how could I, how could I look at these documents that were, um, you know, someone's last words and, and extracted under horrible, you know, conditions um so my answer to them was how could I not do that? Because I had this opportunity to witness um and to uh to share my witnessing for civilization, for for the future of civilization, of which fingers crossed. Um so so how could I not do that? So yeah, it, it messed with my head in a big way. And the the book that I've just finished writing is my it's not autobiographical, but it does draw on that experience to uh, to co- to come to terms with it. Even though I did that, you know, gosh, thirty years ago, it still is affecting who I am today. Um, and so I wrote the novel to just to just sort of figure out how do I feel about it, you know, and and how. Um, you know what is evil and and i basically came to the conclusion that to to know evil we just have to look in the darn mirror because any human being is capable of evil under the right or wrong set of circumstances and that was like this huge big thing for you know my you know silly little rock and roll girl that I was. Um, and so that influences a lot of who I am definitely as a, as a human being and as a hopefully compassionate human being and as a writer. It's really fascinating
0: to me that you went from that job to a restaurant (laughs) that you turned around because I'm always interested in how food is sometimes the only source of comfort it's always my instinct i always feel like when someone's going through something terrible i can't i cannot fix this can i bring you dinner like and and the dinner's not going to be a filet mignon it's you know what i'm saying it's mm-hmm. i i just want to nourish you and that instinct of nourishing comfort. others and i understand it was a you know it was a restaurant it wasn't you know a yes. charity but it, it's kind of interesting on a spiritual sense that you went from that to turning around and then nourishing
1: others. You know, I'd never really considered that, that connection in that way. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, I'll have to ponder that. Thank you for, <laughs> for that sort of insight. There's uh, another book. Yes, it is.
0: So tell, tell us about the book that you just
1: wrote. So the one that I just wrote is called The Foreigner's Confession. Um, surprise! Surprise! Confessions in the world. Uh, in the title, um, it's uh, my husband uh, uh, is from what is now Serbia, and he learned about uh, and and did some writing about a um, a celebrity f- uh, from the the capital of Belgrade um, from the fifties. This really interesting woman who um, inspired novels written about her and uh she became uh involved with um married and had children with a uh Cambodian royal so um one of the princes and this is all in real life and because he knew my background with Cambodia we we all we always just sort of speculated uh, you know what happened to her because they don't know she went back to Cambodia during the 70s and disappeared she and her her Children disappeared, so so I took that sort of real thing uh, um, and and sort of opened that up and uh, um, speculated that she became a prisoner at this prison where I had done my research. So so her point of view is is one of two main um, point of views, um, and it is her actual well not her actual not her real but in my book her real confession that she is writing to explain her commitment to wanting to to using communism to make the world better and how she just she and the other you know communists of that time got it so very wrong and and what that an exploration of, of that you know of of putting heart into you know we as an americans we we generally don't think of of communism as as necessarily a good thing quote unquote um so so exploring that so that's that's one sort of timeline perspective set in 1977. and then the american um woman protagonist is set in 1993 when the united nations um went to cambodia to ensure free and fair so-called free and fair elections and that was, that's the era when I lived there. And so though this character is not um, based on me, I actually wrote myself in as the director, you know, but in a, as a secondary uh, character, but the main protagonist is this American woman who has had this horrific car accident that kills her husband, her unborn child, and leaves her with an amputation. And so this woman goes to Cambodia to help Uh, landmine victims. And whilst there, she sees a painting of this Yugoslav woman. And there's this weird sort of time overlapping where she, why does she look like this Western woman who was tortured and killed in a Cambodian Khmer Rouge interrogation center in the 70s, and here she is in the 90s, and what's going on? And so their their lives twist and intertwine. And it actually ends, it's a happy story, even though none of that was happy. (laughs) But happy happy is subjective, right?
0: (laughs) I cannot wait to read this. A dual timeline historical fiction is my absolute sweet spot when it comes to reading. Tell me about your reading life. How did you become so interested in, and I usually ask people how they become readers, but for you, you're interested in words in so many different iterations with your songwriting and your lyric writing.
1: Well, um, as far as reading, I mean, I I have a marvelous memory of being maybe, you know, we traveled around a lot um, and uh, I was not, I was always the weird girl. And so, Uh, libraries and librarians were, were my, my safe place. And I will never forget um, sitting on the floor and crying. And I must've been the second grade or third grade. And this librarian woman handing me the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil. Basil Frankweiler. Yes. And, and, and so that was my first sort of memory of a book um, that sort of stayed with me, even though I, can't remember how to pronounce it. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, uh, so, so that was the arguably the beginning. As far as wordsmithing, I think, um, uh, you know, other than what I've told you, I, I remember my first sitting down to write uh, historical fiction based on the life of Joan of Arc. Um, and I have um, probably uh, 20 or 20 books Written by everybody about Joan of Arc. I mean, from the 1800s up until contemporary times. And so I researched. I read it all. I started doing the research, and I remember sitting down to begin to write it. And this was pre-computer, so I'm writing by um, by hand. And then I went blind with with the you know onset of multiple sclerosis. So um, so oh I gosh. couldn't do it. So that stopped that. Um, But then I recovered and, and um, though I, you know, all of us, you know, who, who experience multiple sclerosis, it's all every day is, is, is a new day.
0: Whether they read a book a day or a book a year, I love asking people to tell me about their favorite books. And that includes you, dear listener, What's your all-time favorite? Your desert island classic? What about the childhood favorite that you still know by heart? The mystery that took you by surprise? the biography that changed your way of thinking, or the book club favorite that you can't stop thinking about. I'm looking for guests from all walks of life to talk to me about all kinds of books here on the show. Go to my website, julierotabook.com and click on the button that says, Be a Guest on the Best Book Ever. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. Now, back to the show. you come across this book that we're talking about today, Hunters in the Dark by Lawrence Osborne?
1: I love libraries. um, And I think I was just searching on my local library's search engine for books set in Southeast Asia, or books set in Cambodia, because I was at that time writing this book set in Cambodia. And I think that his name came up. So Hunters in the Dark was written in in 2015. He has a book that came out in either 2019 or 2020 that is uh, also set, that's uh, not set in Cambodia, but it's set in Bangkok. um, And so I think I read that one first, but Hunters in the Dark really appealed to me uh, because it is set in Cambodia. And so his, much of the imagery was so familiar to, you know, my personal experience. So I could really plop right down and, you know, slap at the mosquitoes and, and, you know, pat away the sweat and all of that.
0: It's funny that you just said that because this is one of those books that I, I'll be going about my day and I'll think, oh yeah, I was in Cambodia. I remember that time. And then I have to stop and go, Julie, you have not been to Cambodia. You just read a really descriptive book about it, but it, it has that effect. It's a very physical sensation.
1: It's an immersion.
0: It's mm-hmm. an immersion
1: to read that book. It isn't that what is so magic about fiction? It is magic.
0: Uh, can you tell my listeners what this book is about, Hunters in the Dark?
1: Well, super briefly, it's um it's set in uh, it's not historic, um, and it's it's um not exactly contemporary, but but close. Um, The, you know, a lot of people know Cambodia because of the Pol Pot, you know, horror and, and, and the the, um, proximity of Cambodia to Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And, and so this, this doesn't have that um, geopolitical sort of backdrop that many books set in, in, in the region often have. This is, this is a story of a young man um, who, uh, is, lives a very, he's British. He lives, uh, he's a school teacher. He has a really sort of dreary life, but he's not at all, um, ambitious or, um, wanting to change anything in particular other than the location of where he's at. So he ends up, um, almost by mistake, uh, in Cambodia. And he, uh, basically gets caught up with the wrong people and, and, and on the way on that journey of being caught up with the wrong people, he discovers, huh, he's one of them. And, and so, so we, we're, we go on this journey, which is just like floating down a the muddy Mekong river with all these sort of currents and meanders and everything. So, um, what I like about Osborne as a writer is, um, he, he really, you have to surrender a little bit to to his writing at the beginning, because it can seem a little bit just slow and, and, and almost frustrating because it's like, what's the point? What's the plot? What's happening? Okay, so things are happening, but who cares, right? So so why should I care about these characters? Maybe that's a better description. These characters are so flawed. And, and this particular character is so so deeply human that it's almost painful to, to, to enter into his, his experience of, of his life. That said, once you sort of get through, past that, you are on this journey that is quite remarkable and quite, um, uh, um, astonishing, um, you know, where he, where he ends up and, and what happens to him on the way. Uh, so he starts in, in one part of Cambodia and ends up in Phnom Penh, the capital, and he meets a, uh, Cambodian woman and, and he meets a a corrupt police officer and he's threatened and, and, and bad things happen to them, but he sort of moves through that with this kind of um, like, like this sort of lazy river sort of like, Oh, well, what will happen? So, so even though it's, it's, it's horrible, I I found it a little bit kind of like amusing, but Mm -hmm. in a, in a strange way, but.
0: I know exactly
1: what you mean. So I saw it compared
0: to The Talented Mr. Ripley, which by coincidence, I reread this year. And it reminded me a lot of that. These are objectively terrible people, most of them. And yet you can't help but be a little bit amused by (laughs) what the (laughs) hell are you all doing? Yes. Um, and, And the other part of that is, I felt very off balance through the entire thing because you, I had no idea who to trust. And I started thinking that, I guess that is something I always look for in a book is you're with the main character and you're trying to figure out who you can rely on and, and knowing who you can't. And in this one, by the end of it, I did not trust a soul. I was convinced everyone was after him and that
1: Robert was after everyone else. And, and you know what? that's what I like. So, so all of the fiction and nonfiction that I've read about from this author, Lawrence Osborne, that's a theme. And I believe that that is so honest and so um, human and smart. I think he's, he's, he's an intelligent writer. I would love, love to sit and have a drink with him or or have a meal and, and just like talk about stuff. He's just one of those people that are, um, you know, not consumed with the everyday trends and fads and, and, um, and, uh, I would love to talk politics with him. I would love to talk, you know, big issues with him. Um, you know, he has all of his books, have been optioned for movies. He's suddenly become big. So he, he's been around for a long time. And now suddenly he's every people have discovered him. I had never heard of him before you recommended this book.
0: And it was really fun to go on a deep dive of his work um, in the past week because he almost seems like he's from another age. Like this sort of Hemingway-esque, manly yes. man, hard yes. drinking, yes, traveling everywhere.
1: You know, he wrote, he wrote a travelogue book traveling through Muslim countries, where to find a drink in a Muslim country. It's called uh, the wet and the dry, I think. Yes. Yeah. The dry and the wet, something dry like and that. the wet. Yeah. yeah. So a guy of, you know, handmade shoes and and tailored linen suits and, and, you know, he, he has been compared to Graham Greene from, you know, uh, a different generation. I I, I don't know that I would say exactly that, but they're definitely, you know, he was influenced by that era and, um, and, uh, you know, the pictures of him, what few there are, are, um, you know, he, he's, he's definitely a really, really interesting, you know, like you say, man's man, kind of handsome, big guy, why he lives in Bangkok. Well, A lot of those guys do end up living in Bangkok, whether, you know, he's married or anything. (laughs) I don't know. But anyway,
0: unlike someone like Hemingway, he doesn't seem like or his characters, I should say, don't barrel into a country, cause destruction, think everybody there is dumb and then leave. The white characters who are in Cambodia are harmed by their lack of knowledge and are and suffer for what they
1: don't know and what they don't respect. Yes, and and his and he respects the cultures. I think that's that's the difference of, of what you're talking about right now. You
0: mm-hmm. know, um,
1: Hemingway going you know up Mount Kilimanjaro, you know, to to hunt or whatever. But that was a different era, right? Yes. Um, so mm-hmm. so I think that we're we're all more global now, or many of us are, or should be. Um, and uh, I think that he reflects that in his writing. One
0: of the really sort of sinister aspects of the book is how, what a small place Cambodia is. And um, there are several times that happened to the main character, Robert. Grieve. Grieves. Yeah, which is a Perfect great Perfect name, name yes. right? Um, but in the, in the opening scenes of the book, he wins quite a bit of money. Gambling. And everybody he meets along his trip sort of knows this. Yes. and you get this very claustrophobic sense yes. of everybody knows everything about this foreigner and I wanted to ask was that your sense because I looked it up and I read that there are 16 million people in Cambodia so it can't
1: possibly be true what was your sense of that when you were that when you lived there Oh well, personally living there well mind you it was 30 years ago and um I uh so yes every everybody knew. All of them, everything that I did, all sixteen million of them. Yes. Well, there, there were only you know maybe seven or eight million then. Okay. I, I mean, so there's been this in, in Cambodia this huge you know population explosion after the after the civil war. I I think that uh for the purposes of Osborne's books, he uses that and and expands on it and amplifies it for exactly the purpose that you mentioned which is this claustrophobic sort of oppression so mm-hmm. so he, you know he creates this thick tapestry of of you know physical environment but the physical environment reflects the the in, interiority of his characters and and there is this um uh, you know claustrophobia for, for sure
0: as i was reading this i was realizing i have absolutely no knowledge of Cambodian authors can you recommend some or any honestly any Southeast Asian authors shadow of the
1: banyan tree um but but that would be a really good one that is set during the Khmer Rouge time but it's written by a woman a woman um and from her perspective and is really very powerful
0: shadow of the banyan that is
1: Vaddy Ratner yes this looks lovely that's a that's a marvelous marvelous and and again it's it's kind of a, a I I hope that more and more um, writers from the region will start writing you know books about their lives independent of the war but you know we we can't begin to understand the trauma that that region experienced in, you know in the seventies eighties into nineties actually. And arguably, the United States was the perpetuator of much of that trauma. But that's another story. What are you reading right now? Right now, I am reading The Other Black Girl by um, Zakia Dahlia Harris. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Um, And it's um, a story about a young woman uh, set Contemporary, and she is working in uh, a um, publishing house, uh, a literary agency in New York. And she is the only uh, person of color in in the agency. And sort of, it's it's uh, what her life is like. And I'm kind of halfway through it. It's almost like a like a coming of age story in a way. So I'm waiting for the other. Shoe a drop, because I know it will, because she's setting it up for something sort of um, ominous to happen. Um, and let's face it, ominous really drives plot. You read both fiction and nonfiction? I, I read mainly fiction. I like imagination. And nonfiction has to be really well written, like Lawrence Osborne's um, Dry and Wet. Will you
0: share with my listeners where they can find you and your work online?
1: Well, my uh, the book that I just finished is is almost published. It should be um, available through the normal networks um, in February, late February. It will be available for um, ebook pre order, uh, maybe while. They're hearing this now. I don't know. <laughs> remains to be seen. Um, we will link to it
0: in the show notes, listeners.
1: Thank you. But I encourage people to uh, go to my website, which is leahbashley.com, and um, check out me and feel free to request a, a newsletter. They come out quarterly, so it's not a spammy type thing. Um, and I have an Instagram account and an author Facebook page.
0: This has been a delight chatting with you, and I hope you will come back anytime you have a book you want to talk to me about. I would love to hear what you're reading. Thank you, Julie. This has
1: been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening, Bookworms. For more information on this episode and links to all the books we discussed, go to our website, bestbookeverpodcast.com. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at Best book Ever Podcast. I'm your host, Julie Strauss, and you can find me everywhere as Julie wrote a book. If you loved this episode as much as I loved making it, why not leave a review wherever you're listening? Each review helps new listeners find my work, and I'm so grateful for your help. Thanks for joining me today, and I will see you at the library.